What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, we made it to Friday. How about that? Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Maybe you are a non-Catholic, uh, perhaps a Presbyterian, a, uh, a Baptist, a Buddhist, whatever. And uh, you've got some questions about the Catholic faith that you would love to get answered well, that's why we are here. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Ethiopia, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, 24-7. The address is ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Uh, Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you would like to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both platforms in addition to all of our other great platforms. Just put your question in the comments box, if you would, please. Rich will then see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Would love to answer your question on today's program. A little uh, a pro tip for you, and that is... It's busy around here on Fridays as we're getting ready to uh, face the weekend and all that. And so the phone lines tend to get kind of clogged up very early in the program. So my recommendation is call early. Don't wait till the last half hour or the last 20 minutes. You may not be able to get in at all. And then uh, your question would have to wait till next week. So call now, 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you? Very well. How are you? I'm doing decent, thank you. Lent going well for you? Uh, it's proceeding apace, yes. That's kind of how it goes. Interesting question here from Michelle. She says, an OCIA candidate, or RCIA if you will, was recently informed by someone that yoga is a sin, and she doesn't understand why, came to me for an explanation. I know it's somehow related to Hinduism, but I have no knowledge of what <clears throat> excuse me, would make it a sin. Can you help me explain it to her, or at least shed a little bit of light on why it may not be a good practice for Christians? Thanks, Dr. Anders. Michelle. Yeah, thanks. So I, the, the answer to this question is not yes or no, a thumbs up or thumbs down. It's more complex than that. Okay. So the the word yoga uh, uh, is a Sanskrit word. It comes from the Indian tradition, and you, you find it in, in the Vedic texts of Hinduism, and there's, you also find it in uh, Jainism and Buddhism and other traditions that came out of India. Okay. And it doesn't mean the same thing to everyone who uses it. Right. And so it's a, it, there's a wide variety of meanings that you find even within those various traditions. Now, mm. There's a kind of classical statement of yoga from a medieval Indian thinker named Pantanjali. The Yoga Sutras of Pantanjali are sort of a, a, a kind of a canonical statement of yogic philosophy. Um, but not everybody that uses the word means what Pantanjali means by the word. And there is a there is an extended sense in which yoga in the Indian context, can just refer to, in general, spiritual practices, 
right? That, okay. that, that someone might engage in, particularly with an eye to kind of bringing body and, and, uh, and, and mind or body and soul into some sort of alignment. But the way they conceive of that depends on which school of Hinduism they come from, which mm-hmm. philosophical tradition, and so forth. Um, now, uh, there is also the modern movement of yoga as exercise, right, which has its own peculiar um, uh, etiology, its own peculiar provenance. And if you, you know, wander into your local YMCA and go to the yoga class, you're going to encounter something that Pantanjali would absolutely never have anticipated. It's going to look very different from something that a medieval Hindu practitioner would have would have understood. Okay. And and the extent to which modern yoga as exercise people incorporate elements of Hindu philosophy of religion varies widely. So you you will you will find some yoga studios where people very intentionally attempt to cultivate an ethos of eastern spirituality. And you'll find others where the main idea is just to sweat on your fuzzy little mat, right? <laughs> and uh, and I think, you know, as Christians who want to be rational people, we have to differentiate. We have to recognize that it's one thing to, you know, just want to, you know, put on your lycra pants and and, and go, you know, bend and, and, and twist in order to get a good workout uh-huh. <clears throat> versus somebody who's really genuinely trying to, um, you know, embrace uh, an alien spiritual tradition and incorporate it into their life of prayer. So uh, in 1989, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who went on to become Pope Benedict, wrote a letter um, uh, called uh, Some Aspects of uh, uh, Christian Meditation, Letter to the Bishops of the Catholic Church on Some Aspects of Christian Meditation, where he specifically examined the extent to which Christians should or should not incorporate what he calls, quote-unquote, Eastern methods into their prayer life. And for Cardinal Ratzinger, the the sine qua non, the, the sort of the you know where the where the buck stops is that Christian prayer is essentially a dialogic activity between my I. I don't mean e y e. I mean like the letter I, the subjective I. I am doing this, and the you of God, the I thou relationship, the interpersonal relationship of person to person, mind to mind, uh, soul to God, um, that is essentially based on faith, hope, and love, mm-hmm. repentance, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, we ought to be wary of traditions that would uh, that would uh, dissolve that I thou distinction and and turn the spiritual quest into a kind of private navel gazing that uh, that can lead the soul into a kind of a spiritual rut. And so there are cautions that you should have before okay. you incorporate that kind of thing into your prayer life. What, that's entirely different from asking, you know, can I, uh, you know, can I strike a certain pose? In order to you know work up my glute muscles, uh, yeah, and, and you say, I th- and so there is a kind of hysteria that I have encountered among Catholics that think, you know, anytime somebody you know like bends at a forty-five degree angle, you know, in a in a YMCA class, yeah. that they're doing something wrong. I, to me, that's an extreme interpretation. On the other hand, uh, you know, you don't want to go in for another religion. No, not at all. Uh, Michelle, thanks so much uh, for your email. If that is helpful for you, we are very glad of it. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We try to tackle a couple of emails on each one of our live broadcasts, Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. In a moment, though, we're going to get to the phones and talk with Enrique in Wichita, Kansas. Erica in Newport, Tennessee, looks like two lines open at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 288 
888-528-3986. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We do have uh, two lines open for you if you would like to ask a question of Dr. David Anders. 833-288-EWTN is that number. 833-288-3986. Brand new book available from EWTN Publishing. Want to tell you about Guideposts for the Journey Home by Marcus Grodi. You know, for over 25 years, the Journey Home program right here on EWTN has enjoyed immense success. Marcus, in this new book, shares personal stories of conversion, hope, and renewal to help readers stay close to Christ and His Church amid life's storms, with some of the show's finest interviews, including answers to real-life questions posed by viewers and listeners. In this treasure trove, you'll find fascinating stories about miracles, healings, and vocational journeys. I think that's why I like the program so much, because everybody wants to hear a story. Well, Marcus unpacked so many stories over the years. I'm very glad about this book being out there right now. Guideposts for the Journey Home by Marcus Grodi, available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Enrique to kick it off with. uh, He's calling in from Wichita, Kansas, listening on YouTube this afternoon. A blessed Lent to you, Enrique. What's on your mind today, sir? Blessed Lent to both of you. I just want to say that I'm a second-time caller, and the first time I called was almost 10 years ago. Wow. And you both both helped me in my conversion to the Catholic faith, so I I just want to thank you again for that. this time I'm calling for uh, on behalf of a friend. So <clears throat> I have a male friend. He's he's married to a Catholic, and he goes to mass, you know, every Sunday with his wife and his kids. Mm-hmm. But he's not Catholic, and um, you know, the, the opportunity came up for me to ask him prudently, you know, what what's stopping you from becoming Catholic? Uh-huh. And this is what he said. He says the Catholic Church is basically a bank and real estate holding that doesn't pay taxes. And I'm wondering really I don't I don't really understand where that comes from if he's referring to the all the land and the churches and the money in the church or, or what he's referring to and, and or greed or, or what. But I was wondering if maybe you guys could help me out with why he would have that objection and, and, and what I could maybe tell him. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well well to begin mm-hmm. with, this sounds disingenuous to me. And this sounds like a justification and not a reason, because it's certainly not well thought through and certainly not researched, right? I mean, uh, the church is emphatically not a bank. It's emphatically not a bank. Um, There have been Catholic banks in history. Hmm. Catholics have set up banks. Catholics have been involved in banking. The Vatican actually has a state bank. Like, we have the Federal Reserve in the United States. The Vatican's a Uh sovereign city-state. It has its own banking system. Um, But it ain't my bank. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm a Catholic, and I'm not writing checks against the Vatican Bank, you know? So, I mean, like, the fact that there have been Catholics who've been involved in finance doesn't mean that the Church as such is a bank, which it most certainly is not. When, uh, in my own diocese, mm. when, uh, if a Church wants to expand or, you know, you need to build a new family life center or something, if they take out a loan, they're taking it out from, you know, one of the regional or national banks in the United States. They're definitely mm-hmm. not—they're not banking on money that the Vatican's got st- stocked away. 
And as a uh, in 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 most countries, the church absolutely pays taxes. Well, many countries it absolutely pays taxes. Go ask go ask the, the you know the the Catholics in communist China if they get uh, you know favored banking status in that <laughs> regime, and you're going to find the answer is no, right? No. I mean, in most places, uh, you know, I have I have spoken to Catholic priests. Um, in other parts of the world, in the third world, where you know priests might make an annual salary of four hundred dollars mm. in a, I mean, annual in a year, yeah, you know, yeah. where where uh, say care for uh, elderly priests is entirely the, the 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 task of you know the priest of a parish. You know, the, he's got to take care of his people, and he's also got to take care of the old priests that retired there, and he's doing the whole thing on four hundred dollars mm. a year. I mean, that, mm-hmm. we're not talking about an institution that is just dripping with money from every corner. Now, clearly, Catholicism in Europe has a very long history and did acquire a lot of land over time. People would bequeath money to monasteries and to dioceses. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then we had a, a series of revolutions, starting with uh, uh, the English Reformation, but continuing into the present, where the Church was systematically divested of most of its property. Right? And uh, and so you, you you don't have an institution that's just universally awash in, in wealth. And I, I used to work for the Catholic Church, I mean, in, in the diocesan administration. And um, actually, Tom and I were just talking before the show about whether or not our local diocese had, had met its fundraising goal, right? Because it, you know, is uh, operating on very thin margins in terms of its— uh, in terms of its um, uh, profitability and so forth, and 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 a lot of parishes are operating perpetually in the red. So this mm-hmm. image of the Catholic Church in the United States or elsewhere is just this, you know, sort of the the spiritual version of Berkshire Hathaway. It's just <laughs> it's just wrong, and it also misconstrues the way the church is organized as if the church were a corporation with the Pope as CEO, and it doesn't function that way no, at all. No. Right? Independent uh, dioceses are are uh, in in very in, in most matters particularly when it comes to temporal goods autonomous and independent of one another and there is a there is a religious uh, uh, submission to the Pope uh, but um, uh, but uh, the Pope doesn't own the property you know all around the world that kind right. of thing um, so you know probably his uh, his objection to the extent that there's any grounding in fact comes from you know the the historic status of uh, of the church in uh, in Western Europe, which was a property holder, you know, for a very long time, and and it is true that 501c3s, nonprofit corporations in the United States, don't pay taxes, and of course that includes not just the Catholic Church, but I mean you can go set up a 501c3 to you know to to benefit you know golden retrievers with liver disease, and you're not going to pay taxes, right? I mean that's just that's just a feature of our tax code in the United sure. States, and that's not the fault of the Catholic Church. Um, you know that is a that, that's something that Congress enacted, not not the Catholic Church. I do feel badly for all those golden retrievers, though. Actually, you know what they die of is not liver disease, but cancer. Really? Yes, they have much higher rates of cancer than other than other breeds of of animal. And there actually is a five hundred one c three that exists to study the cancer of golden retrievers. Well, God bless him, Enrique. Yeah. Thanks so much for your call today. We hope that's helpful for you and your friend there. That opens up a line for you right now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. One line open eight three three. 288-3986. It's called a communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go now to Erica in Newport, Tennessee, listening on the uh, Sirius XM 130 channel. Hello there, Erica. A blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today? Well, thank you. Um, I am an RCIA student, and um, I was really surprised to hear that 
a large majority of people in the um, Catholic Church don't necessarily believe that the that Christ is present in the Eucharist. And I was wondering, because um, I, I also found out that during the Reformation, that Martin Luther and John Calvin both believed in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So that's not what the uh, Reformation was about. But I'd like to know how in the world that happened. How is it that 60%, according to Bishop Barron, 60% of the people that are in the pews in the Catholic Church don't believe in the Eucharist? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. There's one thing about your statement, however, that is not accurate. You said 60% of the people in the pews. It's not 60% of the people in the pews. It's 60% of the people that self-identify as Catholics on national surveys. And one thing that is very conspicuous about people who self-identify as Catholic on surveys in the United States is that most of them don't go to Mass. Yeah. And so you get a very different answer when you measure the belief of Catholics who are in the pews— Catholics who actually practice the faith from people who identify as Catholic but don't practice the faith. And not surprisingly, the ones that actually go to church on Sunday are vastly more likely to to believe what the church teaches. Those that don't go to church on Sunday, much less likely to believe what the church teaches. I, I read an interesting article, this is kind of tangential, but I think it's helpful, by a sociologist at Baylor University, I read this about, about last year, that was measuring the relationship of religious orthodoxy, and that would just mean, in his definition, that means do you believe what your church teaches, essentially. Religious orthodoxy with what he calls social embeddedness. Mm. And social embeddedness was a measure of how many of your friends went to church with you. And so somebody who, all of their friends went to church with them, that person's 100% socially embedded. If none of their friends go to church with them, that person would be 0% socially embedded. Hmm. And what he found shouldn't surprise anyone the more socially embedded you are in your church, the more likely you are to believe what it teaches. And so, you know, the whole birds of a feather business, if you, if you, probably the wrong metaphor, but if you hang <laughs> out with people who believe in the doctrine of the real presence, and th- those are your friends and associates, and that's your family, that's what you're going to believe. And those who, who aren't believing those things typically are not hanging out in those circles. Now, what, what that statistic leaves unstated, which I think also needs to be remarked on, is Look, I've been reading Catholic sociology for, you know, a couple decades. Um, Catholics not believing church teaching is not a new thing, right? And, and, and so ever since 1968, we've had huge numbers of Catholics that have conspicuously not believed what the church teaches about contraception, for example. And, uh, you know, you could, you could go down your list of, um, of sexual shibboleths, and you'd find that all the usual characters, you know, either believe or don't, uh, you know, depending on their proximity to to the parish and the Eucharist and all the rest of it, so I don't find the I don't find the statistic at all surprising. I don't at all surprised because I mean, if you don't go to mass, if you don't practice your faith, uh, if you don't really give a fig about what the church teaches, mm. and none of your friends do either, then uh, what is there to compel you or to move you or to motivate you to believe? Sad, but not surprising. Nope. Erica, is that helpful for you? It is. Thank you. you Thank are, you so very much. You are most welcome. Don't be a stranger. Call us again sometime. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Travis now, a first-time caller in Oregon, listening on YouTube. Travis, a blessed Lent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? 
Uh, blessed learn to you as well. I'm just wondering, my question is, if unrepentant venial sin can add up and become mortal sin, like you're not lying, stealing, or cheating, but you're all around a gossiping and being a jerk, I'm wondering if that can pile up and become a mortal sin. Yeah, a mortal blow it's a great question. Life. It's a great question. So there's a way in which the answer to your question is yes, and there's a way in which the answer to your question is no. Um, sin is not a quantity, right? It's not a substance where, you know, I've got, you know, I've got five drops of sin, now I've got ten drops of sin, and as soon as I get over twenty drops, I've hit the mortal level. It, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work that way, okay? So there's no, there's no absolute number of venial sins which piled all together equal to mortal sin. Doesn't, doesn't, the accounting doesn't work that way. However— a, a lackadaisical, casual attitude about venial sin, where a person really just doesn't care about their venial faults and isn't trying to eliminate them and repent of them, what, what will happen is the venial faults will become deeply habitual, and they will make it much, much easier to slide into mortal sin. Think of them as uh, venial sins are the gateway drug to mortal sins, mm. right? Um, you know, uh, cigarette smoking is, is not the same as... as uh, you know, hard drugs. When I was in high school and I saw kids that were running around doing all kinds of nonsense, um, not all the smokers did drugs, but all the druggies smoked. And I think that's a pretty good analogy. Yeah. You know, not everybody who commits a venial sin will 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 tend to mortal sin. Mm-hmm. But 100% of the hardened sinners who are into the heavy mortal stuff, they don't care about the venial stuff. Yeah. So the, the, the proper attitude is we don't want to sin. Venially or mortally. Amen. Travis, thanks so much for your call. Mary is a first-time caller in Connecticut, listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Mary. What's on your mind today? Hello. Thank you, Dr. Andrews, for taking my call. My call, and thank you for being the gift that you are to our faith. And my question is that um, um, my daughter is has been uh, asked by uh, a close friend as a compliment to officiate at... Uh, their wedding, which is not going to be in the church, obviously, but uh, I, I know that's wrong, and I, I don't know. We, my daughter and I, have discussed it. Um, so I'm just, I want to get your point of view um, on how to handle. Yeah, verbal that situation. I think it depends entirely. I think it depends entirely on your daughter's public position. So, for example, if your daughter is a probate judge or a magistrate who, as part of her civic duties, her civil duties, you know, as an employee of the state, uh, an officer of the court, is called upon routinely to perform civil wedding ceremonies, um, she, she doesn't, I mean, she, she, she's not, she can't do that with respect, hold every one of those unions to the standards of Catholic moral theology and sacramental theology. I mean, she's going to be officiating over unions that she knows are, are intrinsically invalid, and she just recognizes them at some level as a kind of civil contract. And this is a kind of concession that mm-hmm. I've got to make to the fact that most of my, you know, my community is not Catholic, and I, that's just it's just part of my job. You know, um, that's very different from, uh, and if she doesn't have that kind of public standing, and this is, is just a perfectly private request between friends, um, then you know the question is. Um, uh, well, you know, I, I, I understand that this wedding is going to be intrinsically invalid, and I, as your friend, have a care for your soul, and you, as your friend, as my friend, have a care for my conscience, and this violates my conscience, and so you can't ask me to do something that violates my conscience, but I, I love you, and I wish the best for you. 
So it really depends on what her position is and why her friend thought this was an appropriate question to ask. Uh, there you go. Mary, thank you so much uh, for your call from Connecticut. Glad that you checked in today. In a moment, we're going to be talking with David in Cleveland, also Lynn in Oklahoma City. Pat is in Lafayette, Louisiana. Tim is driving through Missouri, a first-time caller there. We're looking forward to uh, all of these calls, plus hopefully yours as well at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. It's called Communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. EWTN Radio is your Lenten companion. Be sure to join us this weekend for Lenten Reflections, recorded at the Basilica of Our Lady of Walsingham in England. That'll be on the air Sunday, 6 a.m. and 11.30 p.m. Also, Lent, A Season of Grace with Father Cedric Pasenia. That's going to be Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern. And A Lenten Journey with Father Richard Holung and the Missionaries of the Poor there in Jamaica. That'll be Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern right here and uh, only here on EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now. Here is David in Cleveland listening on uh, AM 1260, The Rock. Hey there, David, what's on your mind today? sir yeah good afternoon gentlemen thanks so much for all you do um a quick question here is there a distinct difference in a uh a male's relationship with christ versus a female's relationship with christ and then in this day and age of uh, transgenderism if someone transitions does that change how they have a relationship with christ yeah thanks i really appreciate the question so one thing that all Christians have in common in their relationship to Christ is our relation to Christ is primarily one of obeying his teaching, imitating his example, and seeking to assimilate his personality into our own so that we come to see the world through Jesus' eyes. And so as Jesus, you know, ate with tax collectors and sinners and, and the poor and the marginalized, and he criticized those who were hypocrites and merely sort of external conformists in their view of religion and neglected the weightier matters of the law like love and justice and mercy. So we are to do likewise. We're to care about the weightier matters of the law, love and justice and mercy, um, uh, love the poor, love the marginalized, uh, that sort of thing, and, and you know, live lives of, of penitence and faith, hope, and charity. That That's true for every Christian. Uh, now, it, there are differences uh, in that my body is, is part of my identity— and I am my body. My, my, my fundamental identity as a human person is not something other than or extraneous to my body. So I, I do love Christ as a man. And that has some real uh, implications, right? So for one thing is it has a, a, a big impact on the question of vocation. If I'm a man, which I happen to be, um, you know, up until a particular point, say the vocation of priesthood is open to me. Um, that's not open to a woman. Uh, certain forms of religious life are open to me. You know, I could go join a Benedictine monastery. I cannot go join a Benedictine convent, right? Um, uh, marriage is open to me as a man. I could take a wife, and, uh, and, and, and I could raise up children. I could generate children with my wife, and I could be a father. Um, a woman can't be a father, in the same way, there are avenues open to a woman that are not open to me as a, as a Catholic. Consecrated virginity is a vocation that is, uh, that is 
for females, right? Uh, religious life in a female community, obviously open to females. The vocation of motherhood is open to women. It's not open to men. Uh, and so, and, and you know, it's we can't we can generalize that we may not be able to cover every single case, but in in, in many instances, men and women do have. Um, maybe overlapping but distinct personalities and, and certain tendencies and traits that might characterize, um, you know, uh, one sex more than the other. And John Paul II writes about there being a distinct dignity of women. Right? He talks about the dignity of women and women having particular giftednesses that, that men sometimes lack. Maybe not every man, but in a, in a large number of cases. So definitely our sexuality plays in to the question of our personality as well as our vocation. Now, when you the, the, with respect to the question of transgenderism, the transgendered uh, ideology, now, you have to distinguish between the psychological condition of having gender dysphoria, and that would be, you know, somebody who is biologically male, but maybe they really wish they were female, or someone who's biologically male who, who wants to see themselves in the world as a female. That's a psychological condition. Then there is the ideology. The ideology is this this um, um, this you know, sort of quasi-religious idea that's taken hold in the Western world that that my my interior sense of myself, my picture of myself in my mind, my inclinations, my my attitudes that that is fundamental to my identity, and that my body is uh, is extraneous or secondary to that, and that. That ontologically, there's something essential about, you know, my sense of myself as a gendered person that is disconnected from my body and is somehow primary and ultimate. And that uh, if I assert myself to be some gender, then it is morally incumbent upon you to concede that self-definition. So if I call myself a woman, you are a bad person if you don't agree with that self-definition. And, and law and government and school and athletics and, and all the rest of it have to bow down before my self-proclamation. That's no longer a psychological state. That's now an ideological position that is sort of has quasi-religious overtones to it. Mm. And the Catholic Church does not accept that ideology, does not think that, um, you know, that a person's true identity is fundamentally disconnected from their biological sex in that way. And so that there's a there's a philosophical error at root there, and so we we are our bodies. Our biological sex uh, does define us in a in a in a in a sort of primary and ultimate way. Uh, if somebody finds that to be distressing, then that is a situation that calls for compassion and care and perhaps therapeutic intervention. Um, but not the kind of uh, ideological kowtowing that the society insists that we that we perform. And so, for example, if a uh, if a woman declares herself to be a man, she cannot marry as a man in the Catholic Church. She could not be ordained to the sacred priesthood. Um, if I, as a man, came out and said tomorrow that I was female, uh, that wouldn't give me a right to say join a, a women's convent or a women's religious community. That we, the Catholic Church doesn't recognize that. Okay. David, thanks so much for your call. We'll try to get to as many uh, phone callers as we can in this hour of Call to Communion. Here now, Lynn in Oklahoma City, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Hello, Lynn. Uh, Blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today? Thank you. To you, too. Lent. Excuse um, me. I, it is not It is not Advent. I did it again. It is Lent. A blessed Lent to you. There we go. Thank you very much, and a blessed Lent to you both. Um Okay, I had 
to write down so I can say it without messing up um, and not take up too much time. Um, I understand that bowing our heads as a sign of reference for the precious blood, um, precious body, and the crucifix and all that. But during the Mass, we see altar servers, deacons, and then priests bow to each other when they're passing back uh, such things as chalices, incense, um, water, and towel for, for purification. Why do they do it in those cases? Is that a church teaching, or and are they supposed to be doing that? Say for Mass, the way we you know don't see them doing that because right, right. So there are a few instances where there are, where bowing is appropriate in the Mass. So um, we always bow. Uh, at the line in the creed, et incarnatus est, and he became incarnate. And we bow out of reverence for the incarnation. That's 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 a place which specified in the rubrics that everybody is supposed to bow. Um, it is also a common pious practice in the Catholic Church to bow when you pass before the altar, uh, because that's the place of sacrifice, where the body and blood of Christ is sacrificed. We bow in front of the altar. Um, we would bow in front of the tabernacle. We bow in front of the elevated host. Um, uh, some sign of reverence is appropriate when we go go forward for Holy Communion, um, you know, some bowing of the head or, or, more, or a more profound gesture when you go for, forward to receive the body and blood of Christ. So all these are instances in in um, uh, in the Mass when it's appropriate to bow. Um, you know, I, I, I personally am not familiar with, you know, bowing every time you turn around, you know, at, at every sort of gesture that would take place at the altar or, you know, during the— um, uh, during the celebration of the Mass. So there may be a kind of a, 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 a bowing inflation that's going on in your parish, uh, but the ones that I mentioned <laughs> are the ones that I'm familiar with. Okay, very good. Uh, thank you so much for your call, Lynn. Uh, our earlier caller, Mary, had that question regarding her daughter was invited to participate in a ceremony, and uh, Mary's follow-up question was, it, would it be a sin for her daughter to do so? So... Again, like I said, I think it depends on what her position is in in civil life and her relationship to her friend, right? So, you know, if she has some kind of official position as a justice of the peace or uh-huh. a magistrate or a probate judge or something where performing wedding ceremonies is part and parcel of her civic duties, um, then I would say not. Now, also, I wasn't quite clear if the couple that's getting married, they're Catholics that are getting married outside the church? Yeah, she didn't say. All right. If they're not Catholics— if they're two Presbyterians or two uh-huh. atheists, then there's no objection. There's no objection. Okay. Right? Um, it's it's Catholics that are bound to marry in front of a Catholic priest or a Catholic deacon. That's a that's a law of the Church. Sure. If they're not Catholic, then they're not violating that particular law. And the Catholic Church does recognize, potentially, the validity of, of merely natural marriages. And at the end of the day, it's the couple that conveys the sacrament in the case of Christians, but, but the, the promise of marriage upon one another in the case of natural marriages, and and uh, someone who officiates is essentially a witness to that, not not the one who's effecting it. So the question is entirely one of, you know, whether or not there is a potential for scandal, who's getting married, sure. what her position is. And since I don't have those facts, I'm not going to say up or down, sin or not sin. Mary, thanks again for your earlier call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us on Sunday morning for Divine Intimacy Radio. That's at 6.30 a.m. Eastern here on EWTN. Join Dan and Jordan Burke. They'll continue their discussion about the writings of St. Alphonsus Liguri. They'll also be talking about how to face desolation and dryness in prayer and the importance of trusting in God 
through these periods. Again, Divine Intimacy Radio, Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m., right here on EWTN Radio. That is, of course, Eastern Time, Sunday morning, 6.30 a.m. Here is Tim now, a first-time caller. He is driving through Missouri, listening on uh, the Great Catholic Radio Network. Hello, Tim. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Happy Lent to you both also. Thank you. Um, My question is, um, I was raised in a Christian household. Um, I went to a Christian school for eight years growing up. Um, I see a lot of things from both political sides that I just don't see Jesus standing up for. And I'm just really confused and conflicted. And I understand that our political leaders are all, they're deep down, they're human. That's, you know, they, they have the right to sin, you know, just like the rest of us and repent those sins also. But I, really conflicted because I see I see churches standing up and I'm not gonna call out I'm not trying to call out a side, but I see churches standing up and I see Christians standing up for what the Republicans are doing and I do not agree with it and I do not understand it with it. I don't agree with the Democratic side of abortion, but I look at how I'm going to call him out. I look at how Donald Trump treats other people. All right, let I... me let me jump in here because you know we're a, we're a nonprofit corporation. We don't take political sides nope. at all, and that we're emphatic about that. So let me just talk about the Catholic view of our responsibility in in political life and civil life. Uh, one thing that's extremely clear is that Catholic moral theology is not political ideology. It's not political ideology. Catholic uh, uh, social doctrine is not political ideology. And so the Catholic Church, you know, doesn't take a position on, say, you know, should you be a capitalist or not? doesn't take a position on, uh, you know, whether how much spending should the government have on, say, welfare programs. Uh, You know, it doesn't take a position on what's the right policy to take, you know, down in the fine details on questions like immigration. What it will take a position on is it'll say, immigrants are people. Yes. And they have to be treated with dignity. Yes. Unborn babies are people, and you can't murder them. All right. It will take a position like that on a fundamental moral issue, but it, it's not going to get down into the weeds and, and lay out a political ideology. And, uh, and, and the, the, God has not revealed a specific juridical order that has to be imposed on civil society. That's what the Muslims believe. They, they do hold that position. Catholics don't. And so there are any number of, uh, of, of political um, theories that are compatible with, uh, with the Catholic conscience. So in, in one era, you could have a Catholic monarchy. In another situation, you might have a Catholic democracy. I mean, you, you could have a Catholic republic. You can have different forms of government, um, and they are more or less just insofar as their various ideologies and political systems can actually bring about a just social order that accords with the demands of, of Catholic moral thinking or Catholic social doctrine. So our obligation as lay Catholics is uh, uh, we do have an obligation to promote social justice. A person could legitimately come to the conclusion that, you know, this party or that one at the end of the day, we'll, we'll move the ball farther down the road in the right direction. 
and I don't have to agree with their entire platform to pull the lever and vote for that party. I'm not voting for their ideology. I may yeah. radically disagree with their ideology. I may not be voting for a distinct personality. I may find the personality odious or otherwise, but I think that this party or that one, on balance, is going to help bring about a more just society. Now, a person could also say, um, you know what, I like this party's ideology, I, I like their platform, um, but I think that if they got into office, um, there's going to be some kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, knee-jerk reaction against them, and I think that actually the party who believes what I believe winning might actually not accomplish what I want to see accomplished. Like, I, I could make a kind of political calculation that... Maybe I'm going to sit this one out because I don't actually think my party is going to be able to deliver the goods. I mean, these are all prudent choices. And the point is that my Christian identity never aligns with my political identity perfectly. Never does. And I certainly doesn't align with my party identification. Mm. It's always a prudential choice. It's always a decision. I'm always trying to discern what is the best thing that I can do personally to bring about a more just society. You know, I, I might conclude, you know what, I'm I'm going to be much more effective, um, you know, in some form of, um, uh, you know, well, maybe I'm a hospital administrator. And, and I have a real opportunity to work for a more equitable and charitable uh, dissemination of medical care to the poor. And, and my energies are just towards social justice are just much better spent there, right? And I'm going to tell a story. This, has, this is very tangential to the Catholic faith, but it struck me recently. I found it fascinating. Um, Tom, you've probably heard of the, uh, of the autistic animal scientist Temple Grandin, who uh, she teaches at Colorado State University. And she sort of come to fame because she's, she's autistic and has you know, suffered some pretty serious difficulties growing up, but she became a real expert in her field, and she contributed a lot to animal welfare and cattle handling. She became a real expert in cattle handling. Um, but because of her autism, she's had this interest in education and differences in learning. And I heard her say recently that she's frustrated with all the young people that their idea of changing the world is there's nothing other than for them to do other than political activism. Wow. Right, that they that they learn all the right shibboleths about uh -huh. you know what cause they're supposed to support, but they don't know what to do about it other than to just go out in the street carrying a sign. And she says, "Look, what I did about it was I saw a real problem that needed to be fixed. I went and got a PhD. I became an expert, and I created systems that materially improved, you know, animal welfare and animal husbandry in the country. That yeah. was my contribution to the common good. It wasn't just carrying a sign at a picket line, you know, and." even though I don't think she's particularly Catholic, I don't think she's Catholic at all, like the, the idea, how do you promote social justice? Mm -hmm. Her point was, was well taken, that it's, it's a, a, a much more robust process and a complex process than simply reducing to the question of who you vote for, right? I mean, oh, yeah. you know, like Mother Teresa, uh, I don't know if she ever voted in an election in her life. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't, I don't know. Her contribution to social justice had very little to do with who she voted for. Yeah. And everything in the, in the world to do with her public persona and who she was in the face of her neighbors. Yes, indeed. Thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Pat now. Pat is in Lafayette, Louisiana, listening on the great Christ Our King radio. Hello there, Pat. What's on your mind today? Hi. Uh, happy Lent to everyone. Thank you. Um, I'm a religious a teacher for second grade, and I had a student ask me, if Adam and Eve are our first parents, does that mean that I'm related to the little girl next to me? 
So I said, well, spiritually, you know, we are related. But I was wondering if Dr. Anders had maybe a little better answer to give her, uh, for, considering that she's seven or eight years old. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, there's a scientific answer to the question, and that is that all human beings are related. All human beings are related. I mean, that's just a that's just a that's just a genetic necessity. Yeah, we're all the same species. So yeah, yeah. we're all related. Yeah, there you go, Marianne. Good answer. Thanks so much for your call. Here is uh, Stephen now in Illinois, listening on the Great Covenant Radio. Hello, Stephen. A blessed uh, Lent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Uh, at mass today, the first reading was in particular about Joseph, the son of Israel. My question is, how can a a brother sell their own brother to uh, another, you know, country or something? I mean, it was back then. I mean, would not he have said, you know, these are my brothers? How could they sell me? Um, Yeah, I appreciate the question. So remember that that Jacob had, uh, uh, he had children by different women. Ah, and so not all these guys had the same mom, and there was a tremendous amount of rivalry between them. And historically, uh, I mean, in civilization, um, you know, internecine conflict has been overwhelmingly common. I mean, there was a time in the Ottoman Empire where the way it was handled was, you know, the, the sultan would have, you know, 500 offspring by, by as many women, uh-huh. and uh, he would pick one to be the successor, and the first thing the guy would do upon, you know, uh, arriving in office was to have all of the other royal children strangled to death. Wow. So he wouldn't have any contenders for, you know, for the throne. I mean, this, just, this kind of thing has just gone on through all of human history. Reminds me of the Smothers Brothers. Do you remember that album, Mom Always Liked You Best? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Hey, thanks so much for your call today, Stephen. Call to communion here on EWTN. Marianne is listening in Grand Rapids on the great Holy Family Radio. Hello, Marianne. What's on your mind today? Hi. um, I love your show. I'm a creative Catholic, and I still learn things and have lots of questions. Um, My question today is, when I go to Mass, uh, more and more, I have noticed that whenever Jesus Christ's name is pronounced, everybody, some people bow their heads. And at first I thought, well, that's just that person's thing. But more and more, I'm seeing that. So I don't think I'm supposed to be doing that. But why would they be doing that? Is that just their way of showing their love of Christ? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of confused. Well, sure, just out of, out of reverence for Jesus as as uh, the Son of God and their Savior. Yeah, we love Him. It's a it's a beautiful, pious gesture. There it is, Marianne. Simple as that. Thanks so much for your call. Donna sent us this email. Dear Dr. Anders, please explain what Catholics are talking about when they talk about the body, blood, <clears throat> soul, and divinity of Christ. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So. Uh, very often, you'll hear Catholics use this phraseology when they're referring to the Eucharist. And as you recall, at the Last Supper, Jesus took bread and said, this is my body, and he took a, a cup of wine and said, this is the chalice of my blood of the new covenant, and gave the command, do this in memory of me. And Catholics have always taken Jesus at face value when he said, this is my body and this is my blood, and that the ceremony, the ritual that he instituted, really is a communion in his body and blood. Now, Here's the thing about body and blood. Because Jesus is a, is a human being, human beings are not just body and blood. They're body, blood, and soul. 
If you're alive, you're body, blood, and soul. If you're dead, you're just body and blood, and your soul someplace else. But if you're living, you got body and blood and soul. But Jesus, as a divine person, was body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so wherever you have Christ's body and blood, you also have his soul and divinity. Now, why is it important to mention the soul of Christ specifically? Well, by mentioning the soul of Christ, we underscore that Jesus is in fact alive. See, if I just had body and blood and didn't have soul, then I, what, I ha- what, I, what I had would be a dead body. So when I mention soul, I'm mentioning that what I have is a living body. Mm-hmm. It's the living body, the resurrected body, the ascended body of Christ that I have in the Holy Eucharist. And by mentioning soul, I mean, excuse me, by mentioning divinity, I em- emphasize that, that you know, Christ wasn't just a human being in whom divinity took up residence and, and could potentially leave one day. No, he really is, in his very person, divine, and is always divine, is eternally divine. So he will, he will always be the God-man for all eternity. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit. St. Thomas Aquinas, who is kind of our grand poobah theologian, uh, 13th century theologian, asked a hypothetical question. What would have happened if the disciples had celebrated Mass when Jesus was in the tomb, like before Easter Sunday, before he'd risen from the dead? And Thomas's answer is, well, they would have had body, blood, and, so- and divinity, but not soul. Fascinating. Because for that three-day period, the soul of Christ was separated from his body and blood. But no more, no more. He rose from the dead, so body, blood, and soul are back together, and divinity never went anywhere. Amen. Uh, and uh, Donna, thanks so much for your question. Here's a last one from Joseph. Is the sacrifice of the Mass a propitiation for the sins of the whole world, or is it a propitiation only for the venial sins of the Church? Yes, so the, the Mass is, uh, is on behalf of the Christian faithful. Now, that, it is the sacrifice of the Church, let me put it that way. It is the sacrifice of Christians, the sacrifice that Christians offer to God um, that is their act of worship. It can, however, by intention, be offered for the benefit of a non-Christian or a non-Catholic. So a priest could say, for example, I offer this Mass with the intention of, you know, the salvation of my non-Catholic neighbor, Ah. right? Um, And it would be the merit of Christ's sacrifice, uh, you know, offered on behalf of that person. But it is the sacrifice of the Church. I mean, obviously, my, you know, my Presbyterian and Baptist friends are not, they're not cooperating in the sacrifice of the Mass. They're not intending that offering. It is the offering of the Church. Joseph, thanks so much uh, for your question. Glad we could close out on that. Dr. David Anders, have a great weekend. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, we do this program Monday through Friday live right here on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern. Check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com slash podcast. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hope that you have that great weekend as well. See you on Monday here on Call to Communion. God bless. God bless.